So uh, let's do what we do and let's begin in silence. Take a deep breath or three. So the goal here is to be present and to be open and to awake. And may grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. And um, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on the spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. So, um, as you know, Dr. Hodley, Hudley is sitting with me today. And, <laughs> Dr. Hudley, Holly, and Holly, Hudley, and Dr. Doctor. Um, and I want to begin by just acknowledging um, that my beautiful bride sitting here, whom I frequently refer to as my research department, because she's always taking articles from the New York Times and saying you should see this or you read this or whatever. And um, we had been together about three months or so and she had heard me speak at professional conferences or in consulting roles. I don't think I was teaching at the time. And she said to me once, uh, you know, if you were an architect designing a 2,000 square foot house, your front porch would be two acres big. <laughs> All right, that was her kind way of saying that my introductions were too long. Um, now we've lived together long enough, she's lost that kindness. It is saying, would you shut up? Would you give it a rest? So um, next week, I'm going to talk about the six ways, and as a matter of fact, uh, Philip, Philip Baker anticipated this in a question that he asked me at the beginning uh, when we were standing out in the hall. He said, if it is true that we are already okay, why is it so hard for us to accept that? Mm. And there is a reason. There are reasons. There are a multitude of reasons about messages that we get when we're young about the world is too big and you're not enough or I'm not gonna be here to take care of you. Those two are the main messages. You're gonna be on your own overwhelmment and abandonment. But there are many ways that we can di distract ourselves from walking this path that we're gonna be walking, carrying a growing, evolving understanding of God or our understanding of God in one hand and a growing, evolving understanding of self in the other. That'll be the focus next week while we're trying to walk this path illuminated by Jesus. And today we're going to continue talking about um, our reaction to this book by Don Cupid, whom I met 25, 30 years ago as part of work in the Jesus Seminar. And um, I wonder just, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but have any of you checked out the YouTube videos of this book? One person has, two, three, four, five. Okay. Um, I hope you find them helpful to understanding how um, Don Cubitt 
within a priest in the Episcopal Church in England, the Church of England, and he is writing, uh, he did wrote a book called The Sea of Faith, which you see here, and he had this book, or the BBC was so smitten with the book that they made it into a six-part documentary series, which you get on, get on YouTube for free. And um, he gets a metaphor of the sea of faith from a poem by Matthew, Mar Matthew Arnold. The sea comes in to the shore and in the process changes the shore. It goes out, and when it comes back, it's not the same sea, it's not the same shore. And faith is the sea. The metaphor for the sea is God. God is a union, in, in Carl Jung's uh, understanding, uh, the sea was a good metaphor for God. So if you dream of the ocean, which you do, a lot, a lot and whales, whales. Yeah. then you're dreaming of God. So, and, and uh, any of you have had dreams where you can swim underwater? You've had those dreams? No? Okay, come and see me after class and we'll, <laughs> we'll work this out. Anyway, so um, we have both been talking um, every day the last couple of weeks. Uh, as we did during COVID. It's been a lot of fun. Um, but part of what I want to say in this two-acre introduction is that um, we're trying to keep all of these things in mind at one time. So if you, if you miss here, thank goodness it's on archive and you can go and watch what's happened here later or listen to it while you're working out or doing something healthy. Um, but I just wanted to remind you that we're not speaking in a vacuum when we talk today. Your introduction was so long that my iPad went off. Hmm? Are we done? I don't know. Are you? No, I am. I'll shut up. <laughs> so, still got one more. Um, yeah, the, the, the thing is that every, every, every week I want us to be aware that these are the things that we're working on constantly, whether they get named or not, that we want to grow in our understanding of God, self, and the other, and particularly where we can learn to see the other as we see ourselves because the other is us, okay? That's it, and now shut up. Well, and to add to that, the other is us. And the other is also other than us. And to see the other as transcendent, as beautifully other, is also to recognize our own otherness. Enough others in there? Yeah. So it's the whole, I am not you, I am I'm not, not other than that, you. That, that whole thing, again, I may or may not reference this next week, yeah. but if everybody just could keep those two things in mind, what we call projection and transference, no. I'm not you, mm -hmm. but I'm not other than I'm you. I'm not other than you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we've got this video, which I think we'll play. All right, just tap it once. No, that's it. It may not. It may not. And it's playing. It doesn't have audio. You have to read the subtitle. And they're tiny. We'll explain it. Don't worry. Okay. 
I can tell it. It's an old Zen teaching story. The Zen student goes to the master and says, I need you to teach me what I need to be enlightened. And the Zen master says, do you like tea? And the student says, yes. Mm -hmm. And so the Zen master begins to pour him a cup of tea. And the tea cup overflows and overflows and overflows. And on the table, onto the floor, and finally the student says, stop, stop, it's full. And the Zen master said, the cup is like you. You're so full of preconceived notions and ideas, I can teach you nothing. Yeah. Until you empty yourself you're not able to receive new teaching. I know that applies to no one in here. So, yeah, right. Yesterday I was, um, I'm in this weekend long course for my spiritual direction certification and yesterday's lecture was on Buddhism and there is the paradox of the gift, the giver and the receiver. And we are all three. The, the second that the gift changes hands we become the giver, but we also become the receiver when the gift is given back to us. Even when it changes from your left hand to your right hand, you're the gift, the giver, and the receiver. So I, to move on, I love and hate Instagram. I think it captures me uh, and makes me buy things. And then, but every now and then, Instagram will just have some really lovely, they figured out something right, that I like things about mindfulness or whatever. <laughs> but this video found me um, about by a Shaolin monk and living in Europe, and he did this ex, he did this kind of brief talk on emptying the cup. So what it means to come to something with beginner's mind, and here's our symbolic cup today, but in order for something new to come, we have to let go of something old. In this case today, we're kind of talking about our habits of thinking around God. And we need to empty our cup around some old habits of thinking about God. So to frame this, we're going to just kind of empty our collective cup today. And hold this in this space as a reminder that we are all emptying. And we're in no rush to refill it, to populate it with new ideas, neuroses, and worries, but just to stay, in a sense, with beginner's mind. And this is something we can do every day, is empty our cup and ask for it to be refilled. There's our symbolic empty cup. In the Tao Te Ching, it's a book of kind of prayer, poems, paradoxes, and Chapter 11 says, we join spokes together in a wheel, but it is the center hole that makes the wagon move. We shape the clay into a pot, but it is the emptiness inside that holds whatever we want. We hammer wood for a house, but it's the inner space that makes it livable. So emptying this cup is like allowing us to wait around in that empty space. It still provides a form we're not talking about an endless puddle on the floor. We still have the form. But we're going to keep the cup empty to help change our habits of thinking so that they don't become too rigid, so that we can let go of clenching the rope and open, just soften that hand a little bit. Your turn. 
So we're talking about the sea of faith. And I want to ask you if you know. I, 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 I don't know what percentage of you go to the worship service, either before this class or after. Um, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know that a lot of people, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, about why people don't go to uh, worship services. But one of the reasons that I get is that a lot of people say that they can't stand the creed. <clears throat> they don't believe the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ is land goes on and on and on, you know. And people will say, I don't believe the creed because I can't take it literally. And um, one response that I have to that is that when the Apostles' Creed was written, um, it was written to get uniformity among people who uh, Constantine wanted to consolidate, get religious agreement in the Roman Empire. So he got the church leaders and they were no better or worse than leaders today. Uh, the, the leadership that had the most money and the most power won out, and that was the leadership that happened to be in Rome, right? That's why it's called the Roman Catholic Church, because their seat, or the seat of faith was in Rome. So they came with this creed. And my statement to people has been that at the time the creed was written, the word factual did not exist as it exists now, okay? So, but still, that's, that's not a good reason. A lot of people who are part of the Sea of Faith communities around the world, though neither Holly nor I could find that there's one in the United States, go to, many of them go to churches that recite creeds, and they do so because they are expressing their affiliation with a group. They're, if they're not, a, that's all it is. It's not <clears throat> that they're expressing a belief about a, a God or anything. But here's a question. I, what was the creed before that creed? Yeah, this loosely knit collection of believers in Jesus or followers of the Jesus way. And before the fourth century, there were many expressions of faith. So what was their creed? Now, some of you who have been attending church since you were a child might say, well, the first creed was Jesus is Lord. Okay? But that's not a creed. That's an affirmation of faith. There was an accretal statement. So a guy that I met in the Jesus Seminar, Stephen Patterson, he is the man, by the way, who convinced me that I should devote time to the study of the Gospel of Thomas. And there are some of you who endured <laughs> several years of my teaching the Gospel of Thomas in here. So I love Stephen Patterson. I love his work. He's a brilliant biblical scholar, and Stephen Patterson has a book uh, that I bought three or four years ago. I read part of it, and then I got distracted doing other things. 
And Stephen Patterson has said that their research, now this is a guy who's part of the Jesus Seminar, indicates that there was an earlier creed. It's in the New Testament. And this is that creed. I don't have it written in my notes, but in Christ's family, there can be no division into, I mean, what's the mark of our culture? Divisiveness, right? There can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. And that, says Stephen Patterson, was the first creed of the church. I just want you to be, be, be aware of that. So somehow we got our slides all messed up. We what? Got our slides all messed up. But we'll go there. I, we, think, no, we, I thought you wanted to do that later. That's all right. We should talk more. Well, we... <laughs> Well, they, I think what we're leading into, though, is this article that at least seven people sent you this week is why people have fallen away from religion. It was in the, in the Atlantic. Um, at least that's when it came to me was this week. And the question asked is why, why is contemporary America not set up for religion? And I think some of the, the tenets are exactly what you're talking about is that there isn't this sense of everyone belongs. The author, I will say, was more critical of American or United States culture than he was of the church. And for him, this was a real grief that people were falling away from the church because of the need for community, the need for empathy, the need for conscientious study. But his conclusion is that contemporary America isn't set up anymore to promote the values of what he believes the church is, mutuality, care, or common life, and that the church has come to reflect that, that it also is no longer set up to reflect the values of mutuality, care, or common life. So our society tends to promote individual welfare, individual accomplishment, individual becoming, rather, and professional and financial success. Our, our identities are very often tied up in what we do and all of our achievements are tied up in climbing that ladder of what we do. He calls it workism. And our jobs and our roles in the world, our kind of ego jobs and roles, provide more meaning than the, the community or the group within which we are operating. So this, for him, I think there's a grief that there's no longer this work towards empathy, care, and compassion, but it's also this catch-22, where is the church in this? And I think he asked the question, why have so many Americans adopted a way of life that have left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to live and be in community? I think we also need to critique the church for, saying, for how it has not kept up with the issues of modernity. So why are we still arguing about the inclusion of gay people? Are they less holy? Are they less capable of teaching, of, of being up here, of being robed, of being married, of being priests? No, but we're still, the church is still arguing about that. 
And if we say things like black lives matter or migrants matter to me, where are they? Why are churches still so segregated? So I think in many ways, the church is still kind of creeping along in this kind of non-modern way and not pursuing a life of complexity, difficulty, difficult conversations, uh, repair. What does it look like to repair the history that has caused division and harm? And I, I wonder, I mean, you, you both were, I'm saying this in front of someone who but works inside of and benefits from working inside of a church. But we both talked this week about how the church also needs to kind of keep up, if you will. So, um, love letters to modern mystics. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to mention Rabia, a mystic, at the end of this talk today, if we make it to the end. <laughs> um, the mystic that I'm thinking about, Meister Eckhart, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, um, to some extent, let's say, um, Elia Delio, put her in that category, um, Jim Finley. And there are so many outside of the Christian tradition. And, but I'm naming people yeah. in the Christian tradition. Yeah. They, they transcend the tradition and yet they speak from within the tradition. Mm -hmm. And I think one of my criticisms of the church, of this church, is that in that quadrilateral that we mentioned last week about scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, tradition and scripture trump reason and experience. Mm -hmm. And what you were just speaking to had to do with reason. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that one of the sad things about our culture is that we are so fragmented. Yeah. And um, let's talk about a couple of things. Um, we have the place where we work out now in the in the high-rise building where we live looks out into the swimming pool, mm -hmm. as well as the horizon of Houston, the, the skyline of Houston. And, and so it's been hot lately, so a lot of people have been going into the swimming pool. Every person going into the swimming pool takes their phone. I'm, I'm not kidding. There's something wrong with that picture. <laughs> Kill your phone, too. Well, I know, but it's, no, they go hold it up if they go underwater. <laughs> But it's just that we're more tied to that than we are to people around us. And the other thing is that our fragmentation is that we're fragmented within ourselves. We leave the body out of the church. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if any of you have attended worship services where there's been liturgical dance. But uh, a lot of people, when they experience liturgical dance in the church, get really, really uncomfortable with that because we have been taught to disassociate religious and so forth from the body. And um, we don't have an embodied faith. And I think that's part of the problem too. Well, and I think that this distaste for the body has also been what has per allowed us to other other bodies, you know? And, and so when we say we don't value the body, then the, then the, the embodiment of our beings becomes less important. 
what, be it a woman, be it a black person, be it a gay person, a migrant, a, whoever. I mean, I think our embodiment matters because our embodiment is the experience we have of what is sacred. And also of trauma. You know, our body is how we know we have suffered. And I was talking to a young woman who's in my life the other day, and um, fragmentation happens to all of us. It's inevitable. It happens because we're born. And that fragmentation is the trauma. But, but the healing is putting pieces back together. It's not getting rid of. It's not fixing. It's not doing away with. It's, it's integrating. So if, if you ask most people, you can test this out yourself, although people might find you offensive. Ask people if they're religious. And the response you will get will have to do with whether they go to church or not. Okay? If you were to ask Jesus, are you religious? It would have, his response would have had nothing to do with going to synagogue or with believing the literalness of the Torah or with having five fundamentals that you had to believe to be part. His, I am religious because I am connected to my brothers and sisters. I am religious because I practice compassion as you have done it to the least of these my brothers and sisters, you have done it to me. Mm -hmm. It's a religion that, is show, that shows up in how we behave. Not that belief is not important. We're going to talk about that. But it's secondary to, if your belief doesn't show up in how you live your life, how you love your neighbor, how you treat your partner, or your dog, or your cat, or whoever, you don't have much of a faith. Mm. I, I, would, I want to jump ahead, if it's okay, to talk about faith as fiction. Yeah, I was going to say, what, so we, we went we're around to several, we're in, in, several in, titles here. So yeah. we had to, we've yeah. been talking every day, uh -huh. except yesterday. We didn't talk because yeah. you were in class and I was wherever. And the first title we had for today was we want to talk about reasonable, we want to call this a reasonable faith. Yeah. And you didn't like that. No, I did not like it. <laughs> you simplify. Um, I think faith is not reasonable. And what I mean by, and so I love the paradox of that, a reasonable faith. Because it, 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 but to have faith is a matter of the heart. We, when we have faith, it is not using rational, reasonable brain. It's a matter of the heart. And the mind is our, our rational, reasonable piece. Right? To me, the, the reasonable faith must integrate these two, must be the, the heart and the mind. And so that also integrates the body. So actually, I, did, I came back to a reasonable faith. I said, actually, I love that title because of the paradox of a reasonable faith. Faith is irrationable. Irrationable. <laughs> that word is also irrational. But, <laughs> but the faith itself is not rational. But by the, the, but by the time it. you yeah. came around, I changed you it You changed again. it already. I know. Yeah. I just, I just so my, here, here's, the, here's the process of my weird thinking. Mm -hmm. The sea comes into the shore, changes the shore. The shore, that's us, has a response to the sea that it decides to put into words. The words that the shore says are created. They're made up. Mm -hmm. They're fiction. Not that they're not true. 
The word fiction is a word that we get the same word fabric from. It's the same word that we get the word factory from. So to say that something is fictional means it's something that we can wear, inhabit, and it's something that we take responsibility for making, for manufacturing. Okay? And again, fiction doesn't mean it isn't true. It certainly doesn't mean that it's factual. Yeah. Yeah. I'm done with that. We came up then with kind of what does it, <laughs> we're trying to escape creeds and doctrine, but we're also going, but we need a form, right? What, what's the form that we want to sort of replace that with or, or maybe think about it in a different way? And so what are tenets of, of, of reasonable faith? One is that faith is ubiquitous. And what I mean is we are wired, it seems, as humans, faith or the pursuit of religion or the pursuit of meaning is as old as human beings. We're wired towards meaning. I'm not saying other creatures aren't. I only know what it's like to be human in this lifetime. <laughs> so we are wired towards asking these questions. And number two, understanding that religion is humanly constructed. It didn't come from some moonbeam or whatever out there and get transplanted into the human heart. It's humanly constructed. Whatever we call faith must resonate Personally, I feel like you have more to say about that one. What, you talked about the word resonance a lot this week. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say more? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, I'll go. <laughs> in other words, it must, it must kind of invite an energetic frequency in your own being. In, in, in Buddhism, it, the Buddha is known for saying, if you don't like what I'm saying, move on. But first try it on. Right? And then... Fourth, whatever we call faith also has a collective dimension. That, and that shows up in two ways. It shows up in our stories, our, our experiences, our traditions, and then in the counter stories. But it also shows up in community. Faith, in my definition, has an action. It cannot be just a thing that we hold on to in the heart, but it must be enacted with the body. And then five different groups have controlled the narrative about God at different times in history. So understanding that what we know about God, religion, faith, etc., is very much based on where we are in time and space. That's one of the real values of listening to or reading Don Cupid's yeah. Sea of Faith mm -hmm. is because the history is there. Mm -hmm. That from the beginning, you can see how the story has shifted depending on our growing understanding of the energy field in which we live. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All the time. Yeah. So that's happening now. Yeah. So that I think we need to elevate experience and reason above tradition and scripture. Yeah. And experience. Yeah. Right? To experience yeah. what it is that we think we believe Absolutely. or say we believe. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing that we talked a lot about is that it is very easy to say what what is not. Right? But how do we affirm what is when we're, kind, when we're emptying the cup? <laughs> There's two words, and you're going to need to pop in here, that are used quite often in theological study, which are cataphatic and apophatic. 
cataphatic and apophatic are these terms that provide different approaches to how we think about the divine. Cataphatic is what's known as positive theology. It's the via positiva, what God is, what are the similarities between the human and what is divine, and uh, whereas apophatic is negative theology, what God isn't or how the human and the divine are different. So because I, yeah. I'm a wordsmith and yes. I love words, um, cataphatic is from two Greek words. The word kata, which means to affirm, take an oath, kata, I take an oath, and phonetic, cataphatic from to speak, phonetic, cataphatic, what I can say, I believe, cataphatic, what I can affirm. Apophatic, the word apo is about denial, no, that's not true. And the same phatic word in the end, what I cannot speak of, so I can't say. And you've got many, many, many experiences in religious traditions of all traditions where the mystics enter the dark night of the soul where there is the unspeakable. I can't say it, but I know it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I loved this. I think we can we could come back to that as a placeholder. But this graphic gave a clear picture, to me, of <laughs> with lots of little words. Did you um, make this up? No, it's something I found. Okay. I, didn't, I did not make it up. But cataphatic and apophatic are, are speaking to the, what we do, what we believe, so that the head, the heart, the hands, what we do, and then the soul, that the sort of integration of all of that might be called our, our soul experience. And so a cataphatic approach could affirm, as you say, the, the creeds are, are cataphatic. I believe in yada, yada, yada. An apophatic approach could be like breath work, emptying, kenosis, or centering prayer, where the sensation sort of fills one's being. It claims that God is ineffable or incomprehensible, and so the divine mystery is really what we're allowing into that space. And I think both are useful. We're not sitting up here saying one is better than the other. We can only know a thing by what it is not. We can only know what it is not by what something is. So paradox is really important in understanding and emptying the cup. And when we, I, I inserted this because I thought about, um, well, what did we mean if we're saying, let's reimagine God, let's empty the cup about what we know? Well, then what do we mean by faith? And in this book that got recalled to my attention this week, I think because he was mentioned in the Don Cupid's book, Lord mm -hmm. Floyd Gearing Lord was. He's also a member of the Jesus Seminar. Yeah. And I think he's kind of done a 180. Oh. Yeah. He's yeah. He, if you had to put all the members of the Jesus Seminar on the spectrum, mm -hmm. he'd be the furthest left you mm -hmm. could go. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Did you say he got kicked out or he got kicked out of something else? He, no, he didn't get kicked out of the Jesus okay, Seminar. Okay. I don't think that would be antithetical, wouldn't yeah, it? It would, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus yes. says, I don't want you in my seminar yeah, anymore. He's challenging so. my, yeah. So this book, it's actually worth reading. It's his own sort of personal journey of, of reimagining God. So he's from. Um, he's British. Hmm? Is that correct. He's British. No. Australia. We'll go with Australia. <laughs> He's never most of you. Somebody look it up. We'll Some get back to it. Um, yeah. Either way, this book is a, a, a good read. And he says that we must understand what we mean by faith. If we're saying 
we're inviting you to have a reasonable faith. Well, what do we mean by faith? And he says faith is not the same as belief. Thanks. Yeah. What? New Zealand. New Zealand. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Lord Gehring is from New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. And that faith is strengthened by our capacity for doubt. What have you said? Faith, the opposite of faith is not certainty. No, that is the opposite of faith. Oh, that is the opposite. Sorry. What did I say? <laughs> the, the opposite of faith is not doubt. Right. But certainty. But yes. certainty. Thank you. That's what I meant to say. So our ability to question, our ability, again, to empty the cup is what strengthens the experience of faith. To have no faith means to exist in a condition of despair, to find no meaning or significance in anything. The closest synonym to faith is not belief, but trust. I said this last week that it requires some amount of faith just to get up in the morning, to trust that things may be as they are and that we can experience them or encounter them, that our coffee cup is where we left it. <laughs> you know, we, we have a certain amount of trust that things are the way they are. It involves having a sense of integrity or wholeness. So faith is a kind of value around integrity, around seeking, around pulling the fragmented pieces back together towards wholeness. So considering faith, we're trying to divorce it from beliefs that require doctrine, aligned with creeds, and instead align it with values that drive the way that you are in the world. This is where the head and the heart come together into action. Faith drives us to be a certain way in the world, to, to, to do, not just to think. So I, I, I'm thinking here, um, while I was listening to you, I was thinking about Michael Morwood. I've been thinking about him a lot lately. I, We've corresponded some recently. Uh, those of you who remember, he is coming here. Um, <clears throat> what I want to acknowledge is that what we're talking about is hard work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the reason more, more people don't do it, is that, oh, it's just easier to go along with what I've been taught. Then uh, it's hard work. If somebody comes along and says there's no God up there, then you've got to come up with another understanding of God. And that's hard work. If somebody says, Jesus did not die for your sins, then that, <clears throat> that goes against something that most people have been taught since they were children. And so if that's not true, then what is true? And what can I put in the place? Mm -hmm. And so you, you've, there's this wealth of material uh, available to people to learn about this stuff, you know? That to, to re, go back and look at the resurrection story, the crucifixion story. There's a story about when Jesus was crucified, the veil in the temple split in two. That didn't literally happen. But it was a symbol, the person who put that story together, that the conflict between the new way and the old way was torn apart. There was a new opening to go through. Bodies didn't literally come out of the grave and walk around. You know, that was a metaphor for Jesus has brought new life into the way that we experience what it means to love one another and to be in community with each other. Mm -hmm. But to get in the position of embracing these things is not something that just like automatically happens. You've got to be open to it and be 
to, to look at the material and to want, want a, a different way. It's hard work to do this work. That's why That's why you need to have a daily spiritual practice. <laughs> Seriously. If you don't read, I mean, you can come here. I'm glad you do and hope you benefit from this. From this. But if this is all you're doing, you're probably not ooching yourself down the road very far, you know. And uh, you, can, you can do this. Maybe it's just because I have a passion and love for doing this work that it matters to me. Mm. But um, maybe well, you took it. I think it. we both talked about this kind of compulsion for sharing, for teaching. I have been a high school and middle school teacher for 14 years, and you know this. And Bill has been doing this for you know 30. I still teach teachers. There's this compulsion to want to share, and we both said if all of this were stripped away, if St. Paul's, if ordinary life, if all this were stripped away, we would still find a way to try and share something. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And we did make a list, and gosh, we're getting close to the end of time. About what 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 our cataphatic and apophatic list is, and my encouragement to each of you, because I think we also talk. Well, what is the sort of doing? What is, what do we want people to walk away with? Is to make a cataphatic. God is, self is, being is, however you refer to that thing. And it isn't. Make one. What is that to you? What isn't it to you? And see what you come up with. It's a, it's a, it's a playful exercise. Should we read it or should we just not get into it because we don't have time? Our whole table full of cataphatic and apophatic. I don't think we have time. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but how about I just say the one, which is the first one starts with God is within. Sometimes this is called the revelation of the true self. In Buddhism, this is, this is the Buddha within. This is the God self. To take, and Meister Eckhart says, we must take leave of God in order to rediscover God. We must empty the cup in order to fill it back up. The apophatic way of saying it is, God is not out there. There is no objectively out there real entity called God. There is no unmoved mover that doesn't also evolve with us. For me, a really important piece of um, my own personal kind of cataphatic and apophatic is we need to come into balance with the feminine. Without coming into balance with the feminine sort of energies of the cosmos, we cannot understand life, death, and rebirth. We can't understand this ongoing cycle. A second part for me is that whatever my faith is, it needs to resonate with the natural world. It needs to resonate with what is. You know, we didn't talk about this, but I, I agree with you about the feminine. But that message is directed to men. I think it's also directed to women. I think women are way ahead of the game. Ooh, I think we we've been so conditioned in a masculine world, and I think we too have to rediscover and embrace and lead with our feminine. I, I absolutely fundamentally believe that. 
I am a person who has been told in many ways that I am too much, too big, too much energy. And as a woman, my first instinct is to apologize. I said that to a man the other day, and he goes, thank you very much. So I, we've been conditioned in this world, too. And so what it means to embrace the feminine is also the work of the female. It's both of ours. Okay. Yeah, there you go. There's your. So. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the, um, by the way, The Sea of Faith is the only book that I have ever recommended in 40 years of teaching that you don't have to read. You can watch it on YouTube. So, and, and I encourage you to do that. I really do. Uh, those of you who watch it, I hope that you will tell the people around you that it's worthwhile. And if you don't think so, just keep it to yourself. Um, one of the first books that my, the spiritual director that I've been seeing for a number of years recommended to me is a book called Love Poems from God. Mm -hmm. And you can get it uh, on a Kindle if you're a Kindle reader like I am, or you can get a hard copy of it. And one of the sections in the book Love Poems from God are uh, poems written by um, Rabia of Barsa, uh, Basra. Uh, Rabia is a female who was considered to be the strong influence of um, Hafiz mm -hmm. and Kabir. Mm -hmm. She preceded those two guys. And um, if you look this up on the internet, you can see the cartoon of Rabia do, is doing this. But Rabia was seen one day going through the streets of Basra. And she had a torch in one hand. This is a parable. Okay, this didn't literally happen. She has a torch in one hand and she has a bucket of water in the other. And somebody says, what are you doing? And she said, with the torch, I'm going to burn down the mansions of heaven. With the water, I'm going to put out the fires of hell. Now we'll see who loves God for God. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you. Bye.